be seated. And for those of you who have children, if you would uh, like to take them to the children's ministry area, we run that through the first grade. They're most welcome to go back there. Your kids are also most welcome to stay with us here in the service as, again, they're learning the rhythms of worship uh, just alongside of us. And, um, you know, if they make a little noise, that's absolutely fine. If you feel like you need to step out, we have a, um, a, a room uh, in, the, in the back that you're more than welcome to take them to, to to help calm them down. But your children are most welcome in the worship service with us. We are happy that they are here. Uh, we have been going for some time through our confession of faith, um, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, again, reading it paragraph by paragraph on particular doctrines and um, that uh, we find in Scripture. And you'll notice, and in, in these books are available to you kind of in the pew in front of you to look along. You'll see, you know, footnotes, biblical, uh, scriptural footnotes that are, are not uh, proof texts, but are giving you how the framers of this uh, viewed the Bible as a whole. And so this was put together from that. But this morning we're looking at paragraph five. We've been looking for a while at what the confession says about Christ as mediator. And we see this in paragraph five of chapter eight says, the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. And so that is paragraph 5 of chapter 8. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to camp out at this morning as we've been working for some time now through the the Gospel of Mark, and my prayer is that it's been encouraging, and and you know the song that we just sang is a is a good way to approach hearing the preaching of the Word of God. That we would confess through melody as a church that the Spirit would give us eyes to see, and and that the Spirit would change our hearts. And so, I pray that as we approach each Lord's Day, as we approach the sermon, that that is our collective prayer, uh, that in humility we come to the text. But allow me, I'm going to read the first 26 verses of Mark chapter 8, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of zoom out this morning, and we're going to examine um, the the first 26 to 29-ish verses, kind of from the 20,000-foot uh, view, because there's some important things for us to see and to help give us... Um, clarity as to the gospel of Mark as a whole, or at least the ground that we have covered thus far. So allow me to read Mark 8, starting with verse 1. These are the words of the Lord. It says, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Delmanatha. Verse 11. Then the Pharisees, they came out, and this is the other side of the sea there. It says, the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, as Christ, saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you remember when I broke, broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him... He asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to spend time in it and <laughs> to consider it together. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord. And God, help me to communicate it well. Help me to communicate it in a way that honors you. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are officially at the halfway point in the, the gospel of Mark. And, and this morning, we're going to uh, contemplate four different scenes. The, the feeding of the 4,000 is the, the, the first scene we're going to kind of think about together and worshipfully this morning. Uh, the Pharisees, and, and if you were to read Matthew's account in Matthew 15, the Sadducees being present as well, demanding a, a sign uh, of Jesus. They, want, they actually wanted a, a sign from God to authenticate the message uh, of Jesus and, uh, and to validate his person, to validate his work, to validate even the miracles that he's performing. So that's the second 
scene, the third scene, is Jesus is warning to the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then the last scene is Jesus' healing of the blind man using his, his spittle. And, and the reason I want, us to, I want us to consider this amount of text this morning is, is because, like I said a moment ago, <clears throat> I want us to zoom out so that we can see the bigger picture of how Mark has compiled his gospel um, and so that we can see why Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote it in the way that he did. Now, how exactly do we zoom out, right? How, how do we do that? How do we see it from a higher vantage point? And I think the way in which we can do that best together this morning is by considering Mark chapter 8 in the context of the ground that we've covered already together in Mark. And if we do that, we will notice some repetition. <clears throat> Maybe some of you have already noticed this. I sent an email to the, you as members this week to kind of pay attention to the repetitious nature of the text just in trying to help you prepare for this morning. But I want you to note specifically how Mark 8 parallels Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 7. Now, Mark is intentional in doing this, and I think that he's intentional in doing this for a couple of reasons that I'll mention in just a moment. But, but keep your Bibles open in your laps, because I, I do want you to see the repetition as you're looking at the text. For instance, <clears throat> we see that the feeding of the 4,000, it's not an accidental restatement by Mark, right? It's not, it's not him restating um, and, and getting some numbers wrong about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It is, in fact, a separate miracle. It's not the same miracle. So we have the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at several weeks ago, which was in Mark chapter 6, verses 32 to, 30, uh, to 44, and it mirrors the first nine verses of our text this morning of Mark chapter 8. Then, if you continue to compare, we see in Mark chapter 6, 45, verses 45 to 56, we see Jesus and the disciples going out on the water as they leave from the place where the 5,000 were fed. And we see that that parallels uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 10, when Jesus sends the multitude away and then he and his disciples, they immediately get into the boat to leave. We just don't have the, the storm account right there at that place. Then we have a parallel between chapter 7 verses 1 to 23, the first 23 verses in which the Pharisees are again, they're seeking to discredit and shame Jesus and his ministry, right? And we see that that parallels verses 11 to 13 in our text this morning, right? In which they're again seeking to discredit the ministry and person of Jesus then we saw that following Jesus' debate with the Pharisees, right, he goes into Gentile territory <clears throat> and he eventually heals a deaf man with a speech impediment, right? We looked at that last week. That's verses 31 to 37 in Mark 7. And this morning we read in, the, in verses 22 to 26 of him healing with his spit, just like he healed with his spit the deaf man. He heals a blind man with his spit too. Now, why would Mark do this parallel, right? Why would he uh, record or compile his 
historical account of Jesus in this particular way? And, and I think that we can answer that question a, a couple of ways. I think first, it's related to this theme of ensuring that the readers of his gospel, okay, the readers of, of Mark's gospel, which are, again, largely Gentile readers, that they would see clearly that Christ, his person and his work, is inclusive of the Gentiles. And, and kids, you've heard Pastor Joey say this a lot, but that means that the gospel Right, it's for all types of people, all types of sinners. I've said that a, a, a lot, and I, I, I will continue to say that a lot so that we can remember that one scholar, he makes this very point about Mark chapter 8. He says, we have every reason to suppose that Mark's arrangement is his own, and it's by design. And one of the results of that has been an emphasis <coughs> on the inclusion of Gentiles along with the Jews, and, and think about that more for just a moment, specifically as it relates to the feeding of the 4,000 that I just read about. Again, we know that's not a restatement of the same miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that we read about earlier. And we know this primarily because Jesus says it in verses 19 and 20 in this chapter. But we also see other clear differences that tell us these are two separate miracles. First, there's a big difference in number, right? 4,000, and that includes women and children. And the feeding of the 5,000, we see in the text that it does not include women and children. So there's a big difference in number there. Right? We also see that the 4,000 that we just read about, they stayed with Jesus for three days to hear his teaching and not one day like the feeding of the 5,000. We see that Jesus used seven loaves in our text this morning instead of five loaves. There were two fish in the feeding of the 5,000 and there were, according to verse 7 of Mark 8, just a few fish in the feeding of the 4,000. Right? There were 12 leftover baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 and seven leftover baskets, according to verse 8, in the feeding of the 4,000. Right? The feeding of the 5,000 was compiled predominantly of Jews, and they sought to make Jesus king in response, by force, sought to take him by force and make him king. And by king, I mean they, they wanted to make him this political power, which is what they believed the Messiah would come and do and, and be. They wanted this political uprising. They wanted perhaps this <coughs> revolution. And they were so adamant about it that Jesus had to send the disciples away forcibly and, and quickly and then dismiss the multitude. In contrast here this morning, what we see here is considered to be a Gentile feeding of the multitude. Right, the 4,000, and after Jesus fed them, they were satisfied, and Jesus dismissed them. <coughs> so we <coughs> have significant differences, right, as, as well as Jesus' own testimony about these being two different events, two different miracles. One's performed predominantly in a Jewish setting. The other, Mark, leaves us to believe the second one is performed performed in a predominantly Gentile setting. So we see that in the ministry of Jesus, in, in his first advent, in the way in which he did ministry, that salvation came through the Jews first, but that the ministry of Jesus and the, 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 the efficacy of his person and his work has always been intended by our triune God to be a blessing to the nations, Right? So Mark includes the feeding of the Gentiles for his Gentile readers. He drives home this point for us time and time again. Right? These Gentiles <clears throat> abided with Jesus in the wilderness. 
right? Fasting with him for three days. Right? Jesus, he ministers to them spiritually for three days. And, and then, in his compassion for them, right? in his compassion for the Gentiles, he feeds them physically right? by giving thanks to God and by multiplying the loaves and, and the fishes and having his apostles feed the multitude as they lay in green pastures. Right, a strong indicator that the Lord is the shepherd of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. I think of Psalm 23 imagery there, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We noted this in the feeding of the 5,000. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. Jesus feeds them. He feeds them body and soul. Right, and before this multitude leaves, our text says that they were filled. Verse 8 says that. They were, quote, filled. Right? They were filled and there were still leftovers. And, and Christ sends them away and his disciples get into a boat, head to a different region. So again, we see that Mark's ordering right, and his, his, his goal is to show that it's the will of God that his kingdom breaks in to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we should see that, and we should praise God for that. Okay, So that's one of the first reasons why I think Mark has compiled <coughs> his gospel in this particular way. But secondly, as we're asking that question, why is Mark being repetitive? And, and by the way, he's showing us Jesus' ministry was repetitious. Okay, But we see that though the disciples were with Jesus often, they still lacked understanding, didn't they? The disciples still lacked understanding, right? So in many ways, the repetition of Jesus' ministry, both his miracles and his teaching, it's used to help the disciples see Christ as Lord and God. And as we'll spend more time on this next week, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Right Later in Mark 8, Right, The very next passage, the passage that I haven't read yet, that Lord willing we'll spend some time on next week, but in verse 29, right, we see a response that the apostles gave. Peter speaking on behalf of the apostles, on these particular disciples, They're responding to a question Jesus gives. It says, He, Jesus, said to them, verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Right? He, he's getting through, here's what, here's what the multitudes, here's what the rumors are about who I am, but who do you, you people that have been with me, who do you say that I am? <clears throat> and Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Now think about that for a moment. Because what we observed Christ do last week, right, he, he, he healed this deaf man with a speech impediment. And, and, and what we just read of him doing a moment ago when he, he healed the blind man, right? Both with spit, he healed them, right? It's indicative of what Jesus did to the apostles spiritually that led to that confession that he's the Messiah, that he's the eternal God, the long-awaited one, right? Isn't that what Jesus does for you and for me, spiritually speaking? We noted that last week, but it's the work of God in our lives that leads to, this was our call to worship, right? It's the work of God in our lives that leads to spiritual understanding, spiritual hearing, and spiritual sight, right? Apart from the intervening work of God in our lives, we would be spiritually 
deaf. We wouldn't have ears to hear. We would be spiritually blind, right? We would be spiritually mute, right? It's the gospel of God that makes the difference, and it's all of grace. Now, this repetitious nature of Jesus's ministry, it drives home this very point, and we need to be reminded of it and to not get bored with it and not get so familiar with it that <coughs> we become callous and insensitive to it. And the reason why it's repetitious and the reason why we need to consider it is because we're forgetful, right? We're very forgetful. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning, really, <laughs> right? But we don't, we don't think clearly. We don't sustain, our, we, we have a hard time with sustained memory, and that's complicated, spiritually speaking, by our sin. We know so many things to be true. And what I'm saying to you this morning is, you're hearing me saying, and you said, you said this last week, and you said this the week before, and you said this the week before that. Yes. I need to remember it. And not just intellectually. Right, and I sit in so many counseling appointments, right? That's the nature of pastoral ministry. That you do a lot of counseling and not just public preaching, but private proclamation of God's word. And man, there's so many times that I can sit across from people and I, and I, I preface what I'm about to say with this. Now, you already know this, right? You already know what I'm going to tell you, right? But at the heart level, and I struggle with this too, at the heart level, we forget, right? We forget. We begin to think in particular ways and behave in particular ways that betray what it is we know to be true. And so we have to remember, right? And remembrance isn't looking at it, checking, yep, we revisited that. It's feasting on it. It's entering into it, right? It's, it's swimming in it, right? It's coming to the Lord's table and digesting it. We've got to remember. We have to remember. When we forget, we fall into the one of two ditches. We either fall into our pride, right? Our self-righteousness, our thinking that we're doing okay, our arrogance, <coughs> It's one ditch, one way to go about it when we're forgetful, right? Or the other ditch is that we fall into crushing despair, right? And we're paralyzed. Let's dig in a little bit more in our text, specifically as it relates to Jesus caring for his people, for his disciples. And it's going to take us a minute to get to seeing that. So, so bear with me because I want us to observe how he treats his disciples, but as we move from the feeding of the 4,000, we see this confrontation with the Pharisees and perhaps the Sadducees. Again, I mean, according to Matthew's gospel, the Sadducees are included. So it's at least the Pharisees, also the Sadducees. But let me just reread that section of text. This is the Pharisees. They came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. There's that word we talked about last week, right? The groaning of Jesus. He sighed in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? And he says this, assuredly, and that's strong language. It kind of means, over my dead body, will I give you a sign? 
right? I will not give a sign to this generation, right? Now, there's a few things here worth noting, All right? First, skeptics are always the ones that demand a sign from Jesus, right? It's always skeptics, not, 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 not his disciples. Think about this, right? I, I don't think that the dis- disciples were so dense. The disciples were not dumb, okay? The disciples weren't dumb, right? I, I don't think that they were so dense that they didn't know Jesus was doing a miracle when he fed the 5,000, okay? When they were with the 4,000, they knew that Jesus could feed them, but they didn't demand anything from Jesus, right? In fact, you don't see the apostles demanding Jesus do miracles anywhere in the New Testament. But what they had a difficult time connecting, <coughs> what they were dense on, spiritually speaking, was the nature of the Messiah's coming, what it meant, how it would play out. That, that's where they lacked understanding. They weren't connecting the spiritual significance of things, not clearly, at least. But it's the skeptics that make demands, right? They want the triune God to come onto their territory, and they want the triune God to play by their rules. In other words, they believe God answers to them. I've been listening to a podcast over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's an interview, and the host of the show, I think he's an agnostic, um, and the person he was interviewing is a Christian who is also a scientist and a philosopher. And I was struck by how the host of the show would ask certain questions. Uh, and, and the host's lines of questioning on, on matters of God's existence, particularly the biblical God's existence, could be summarized this way. If there is a God that exists, then he has a lot of explaining to do. That, that, that if, I, if I bottom lined the, the line of questioning, that would be the bottom line. Right? And, and the host related that to all of the suffering and all of the wars and horrors that, that we experience. And I've been thinking about that a lot because it's a conversation that I've had before with people. And the more I think about that line of questioning, the more I see how dangerous of a path it is to be, to, to be walking. Right? There, there's a lot of arrogance and pride and self-confidence in one's own righteousness in that statement and in, in, in making question, forming questions in that way or having that sort of mindset. There's even a lot of borrowing from the biblical worldview to even use categories of good and evil and then using those categories to criticize God. But even more than that, I've been thinking about those who encountered God in his glory throughout Scripture. My mind went to two places specifically, although we could go to more places. The first place my mind went to was Isaiah chapter 6, right? The year of King Uzziah's death, right? We, the calling of Isaiah. Or King, yeah, the calling of Isaiah. And this is what it says in verse 1, and then we see in verse 5. <clears throat> Isaiah records it this way. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the beginning part of the vision. And, and he sees these angelic creatures that are in the unseen realm called seraphim, right? That have six wings. And, but here, here is Isaiah's response. It's not, why are you letting things happen the way they're happening down here? 
This is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's too much to gaze upon for a sinful man. Think of Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, this is John, right, on the island of Patmos. He says, when I saw him, and by the way, he's talking about the exalted Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying this. Do not be afraid, right? I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death, right? So, so Isaiah, in the presence of the glory of the triune God, he declared his own sins and he declared the sins of his people. John, in the presence of the exalted Jesus, he fell at his feet like a dead man, like a dead man. No accusations, no questioning God about the state of things. We don't accuse God of evil, right? We don't judge what he does and what he permits. We fall at his feet and we declare our own unworthiness. And this is, by the way, what we'll do at the return of Jesus as well. Philippians chapter 2 tells us as much. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that he's king over all things, visible, invisible, right? Over heaven, over earth, under the earth. But we see this pride in the Pharisees questioning Christ in his first advent, right? And by his first advent, I mean in his humbling of himself and in condescending to us so that he might save us. But he's accused, and it's specifically by these religious leaders. And, and the word translated, if you're looking at your text, the word translated as seeking. When our text says the Pharisees were seeking a sign from heaven, it's also translated into English as the word ask. Uh, the Pharisees, they're asking for a sign from heaven, but the Greek behind it has the idea of trying to gain control. Right? They're asking and seeking, not for understanding, but so that they can control Jesus, so that they can control the narrative about Jesus. They can control his ministry. They can make him answerable to them. Similarly, the Greek word for test, when it says in verse 11, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. It doesn't mean like an objective test to determine the accuracy of something. Instead, it means stumbling block. That's what the word behind it means. It's a motive. It's the motive to discredit. It's the motive to disqualify. We see that Greek word occur only four times in the gospel of Mark. It occurs once as it relates to Satan's tempting of Jesus, right? His testing of Jesus in the wilderness, chapter 1, verse 13. And then three times as it relates to the religious leaders seeking to discredit Jesus. In our you know, chapter this morning, <coughs> we'll see it again in chapter 10, verse 2, and then we'll see it again in chapter 12, verse 15. Furthermore, there's a difference between a sign and a miracle. Right? Jesus had been doing miracles all along, and the religious leaders were very much aware, and they had observed, and they had inspected some of these miracles. However, their conclusion was that Jesus' mighty works came from a demon, Right? 
They accused him of being possessed, if you remember, back in chapter 3 of Mark. Right? They had already concluded that Jesus was a false prophet, that he was a false teacher. What they wanted was some sign from the heavens that authenticated the miracles and teachings of Jesus, but Jesus does not answer to them. Right again, over my dead body. Listen, we don't come to faith in Christ on our terms. We don't come to faith in Christ on our own terms. Our triune God who's the creator of all things, visible and invisible, which means that he is my creator and he is your creator, says that we come into a relationship with him through the blood of Jesus alone when we repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Right? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's how we know God. That's how we truly know God. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't good logical reasons as it relates to the existence of God, the historicity of Jesus, including his miracles and resurrection and the trustworthiness of of Scripture. But it does mean that the basis of our faith, the reason we're Christians, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Those are the conditions. And it's quite an arrogant thing that we as creatures, right, we small, finite, sinful beings think that we can manipulate God or accuse God or judge God. We get a glimpse of that not being the case this morning, don't we? So Jesus, he leaves these religious leaders, and he seemingly does so abruptly. Mark says in verse 13, and he left them. That's how he puts it. And we have him and the disciples, they get into a boat again, and, and they leave so quickly that the, the disciples forgot to bring the leftover bread from the feeding of the 4,000, okay? Maybe they are dense. <clears throat> uh, they forgot to bring the, the, the remaining seven baskets, right? And so we see them in the boat, and they're concerned about food, right? That's what is preoccupying their mind. They've got one loaf. How, how are we going to divvy this up? Who's going to, you know, who's going to go hungry, right? They're not thinking about the confrontation that Jesus had just had with the religious leaders. However, even though Jesus left the Pharisees, he's still thinking about that encounter in the boat, right? Have you ever had a conflict with somebody and it just, it put, it, it just preoccupies your mind for days, if not weeks, right? But Jesus, his, his mind is still <coughs> with that confrontation, and he uses the disciples, their preoccupation with literal bread and how are they going to eat, he uses that and he takes it as an opportunity to warn them. And, and this, again, this is getting at Jesus' compassion and his commitment to spiritually mature his disciples, to, to lead them to a place where they will connect the dots and see Christ as Messiah and see the nature of of his kingdom. But look back at verse 15 in Mark 8. It says, then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, right? Which is an interesting kind of addition. I'll make a comment about that in a moment. Now, the disciples did not get it yet. And, And the verses following verse 15 tell us that, right? They still think that Jesus is talking about literal bread and their lack of, of, of bread. And he rehearses, Jesus rehearses the, the two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, to tell them that he's not worried 
about the lack of bread, and he's not worried about them forgetting the leftover baskets, and he puts in no uncertain terms that the disciples, he kind of rebukes them, right? He's saying that they still lack understanding. But what Jesus is warning them about in that boat is the worldview, the heart posture that is set against him, that's set against Jesus, right? Both the Pharisees and Herod, what did they have in common? This is what they had in common. They were both anti-Christ. They were both anti-Christ. Again, generally speaking, there were some Pharisees that were believing and right, and so, but generally speaking, in many interactions that we see, <coughs> the, the common denominator between Herod Antipas and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were that they were anti-Christ. Their leaven was that they opposed Jesus as Lord and God. And this is dangerous. Right? It's dangerous because it severs you from our God who is good and who is just and who will give an account to. Right? It's dangerous because it puts you on a path that leads to ruin and misery. It's dangerous because it earns you an eternal hell, which Jesus teaches about and we'll see later in the Gospel of Mark. And these false conclusions about Jesus, they functioned like leaven. Right? They function like leaven. Leaven, it works itself into the bread gradually, right? Until it leavens the whole lump, right? It, 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 it takes over, right? It's not the flag, uh, frag, flagrant, just obvious open hostilities that often threaten to shake our faith and confidence in the Lord. It's the subtle, slow dismantling work that the enemy seeks to do in our lives, Right? That dismantling method is seen in the questions asked by the Pharisees. Right? Seen in Herod's so-called fascination with Jesus, which he was fascinated with Jesus. J.C. Ryle, he was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool in the late 1800s, he put it this way. The expression used by our Lord in speaking of false doctrine, right here on the boat, in our text is singularly forcible and appropriate. He calls it leaven. No word more suitable could have been employed. It exactly describes the small beginnings of false doctrine, the subtle, quiet way in which it insensibly pervades a man's religion, the deadly power with which it changes the whole character of his Christianity. It becomes unrecognizable. Here, in fact, lies the great danger of false doctrine. If it is approached under its true colors, Ryle says, it would do little harm. The great secret of its success is its subtlety and likeness to the truth. Every error in religion has been said to be a truth abused. So, Jesus is lovingly warning the disciples of of spiritual danger, and, and we have to hear the same warning today. Right? Personally, I've been reflecting on what the leaven of Pharisees and Herod produced. In other words, <clears throat> what do we observe in the Scripture in, in their character? And these are the things that came to my mind as I kind of contemplated the fruit, the, the result of, of settling into, over time, these kind of antichrist convictions, right? This kind of, we may call it Christianity, but it has nothing in common with Christianity, with the Pharisees, right, we see self-righteousness. Not Again, not all of them, but that's characteristic of these religious leaders, right? Many of them trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own ability to keep the moral law of God. They trusted in their own ability to keep their own oral traditions, right? 
their own customs. We see how they burned with envy as well at the ministry of Jesus. They were envious of this multitude, the, of Jesus having this multitude come out to him, that would seek after him. They were envious of the way in which he was received at times. They were envious by anything they saw as success in his ministry because they saw him as a threat to their religious order. So not just self-righteousness, but we see envy. We see in many of the religious leaders a sense of entitlement <coughs> as well. Right? They were to have the place of honor. Right? They counted themselves as better than those that were around them. Right? We see this pride, this constant elevating of oneself instead of humbling themselves before their creator. We see slander as they attributed the works of God in Jesus to the works of Satan, right? A, a genuinely blasphemous accusation. We see this unbridled anger, this hostility toward Jesus that would lead to them and lead them to promoting and participating in his execution, his crucifixion. What about Herod? What does the leaven of Herod produce? <coughs> We observed several weeks ago how his rule and reign was characterized by materialism, characterized by sexual immorality, right? gluttony, kind of a, a, a godless hedonism in, in this quest, this, uh, uh, this lust for more. Right? He had an appetite that was never satisfied. Right? And, and while we may not espouse antichrist doctrines, right, our our behavior is often indicative of what we believe. So what does the leavening work? What are the, the things that we're believing that, that really are, are count, counter to the gospel of God that are permeating in our inner person, right? Is your behavior, what you think on, how you speak, how you act, is it characterized by repentance and faith in Jesus? Or do you have more in common with Herod? In the Pharisees. This last scene in our text this morning <clears throat> is one of Jesus healing the blind man. And this is a miracle recorded only by Mark, and I think it's impossible to understand it apart from the ground that we've already covered. Interestingly enough, it happened in Bethsaida, which was a place that was characterized by unbelief, th th thoroughly leavened by the doctrine of the Pharisees and of, of, of Herod. Uh, this miracle, it's unique because we see after Jesus applied spittle uh, to the man's eye, <clears throat> he asks him if he can see anything. If you're looking at verse 23 in, in, in Mark 8, then we see the man's response is that he can, he can only partially see, right? It's not a complete healing. The man says, I see men like trees Walking, it's verse 24. Apparently the man, had, you know, he wasn't born blind. He became blind later in life. But the account's interesting because it, it's a two-step process. This healing is a, is a, a two-step process. Jesus partially heals the man, and then Jesus lays his hands on the man's eyes again, and he makes him look up, and the man's sight's restored, and he sees everything at that point, like super clearly, verse 25, right? He, he gains perfect sight. He could see for a long distance without any, any blurriness. Now, here's what we know because of the totality of Scripture. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about one of the ways we're interpreting Scripture is keeping in mind the whole counsel of God's Word. 
right? We know that Jesus didn't run out of power, right? We saw him in the last chapter heal a deaf man with a speech impediment, no problem. We saw him in the last chapter perform an exorcism on a young girl, and he wasn't even in the same location that she was. You just spoke it and she was healed, right? We know as Christians and we confess that Jesus is the eternal God, and we know that as God, his power does not get depleted. So this isn't Jesus messing up and then needing to have a go at healing this man again, okay? Now, what I think is happening, think, I think this is an object lesson for his disciples and consequently for us. In fact, I think Jesus' approach to this miracle I think it corresponds to the question that Jesus asked the disciples as it related to their consistent lack of spiritual understanding. And Mark, being the only uh, gospel writer that recorded this miracle, is intentional on organizing the text in this way so, I, so, so as to help us make this connection. Jesus asked his disciples on the boat, verse 18, go back there, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And again, just contemplate that question that Jesus asks the disciples in light of the very miracles that he accomplished. Right? We saw Jesus heal the deaf man in front of them. Right? He gave the deaf man ears to hear. And we see in the way that Jesus goes about the healing of this blind man, right? spittle with both, we see even the, very, the, 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 the progression of spiritual sight don't we? Right? In, in both of these miracles, we get a taste of the journey of spiritual understanding. And Jesus wanted his disciples to connect this. And guess what? They did. They did end up connecting it. As we saw earlier in the sermon this morning, and we'll spend more time on this again next week, Jesus leads his disciples in such a way that they confess him as Christ. Right? They finally evidence hearing and seeing clearly. Right? Here again, he, Jesus, said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, right? And that is who he is, right? Eternally, he's the Christ, the Messiah, the word made flesh, the eternal God. Our spiritual walk with God, it's not one of instantaneous spiritual maturity, is it? Right? And, and we feel the pains of that every day, don't we? When we mess things up, when we lack understanding. But I think we get a glimpse of that in the sight being restored to the man, and in the journey of the disciples. At first, we're blind. Right? Then we encounter Jesus, and he gives us sight. And now our journey is one of him coming into clearer and clearer focus for us as the Spirit of God matures us through the Word of God. Right? We move from blind to seeing men like trees walking to seeing clearly. Right? This is the path of spiritual maturity. And as we take advantage of the means that God uses to grow us, word, prayer, sacrament, word, prayer, sacrament, we can rest assured that we are on that path of spiritual maturity. Right? The pilgrimage that will one day lead to our faith becoming sight. So we see this morning in the amount of text that we covered, we see a bigger picture, don't we? And we should see and take away, I think, several things from the repetitious nature of Jesus' ministry. And I've listed them for you in your worship guide just quickly. Six kind of takeaways. First, God providentially cares for our body and soul, right? We see that in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, right? It's not that 
everything that matters is spiritual, physical doesn't matter, or everything that matters is physical and the spiritual doesn't matter. We see this, this um, holistic approach Jesus has to his ministry. <clears throat> Secondly, we come to God on his terms, not our terms. Right? We must repent and believe the gospel. It's a command. It's a command to repent and believe. Three, beware of the leavening effect of false doctrine. Right? It spreads and it grows. Four, beware of the leavening effect of unrepentant sin. It spreads. It grows. All right. Fifth, our growth in Christ's likeness is gradual, not instantaneous. Again, we see that in the pro- progression of the disciples, but also in the way in which Jesus healed the blind man. And then six, this consistent theme, right? The broken body of Jesus is for people from all nations. Right? Jesus fed the bread to the 5,000 and the 4,000, but he would later... Give them himself, the living bread, right? His own body for their salvation, the salvation of their souls. And we'll remember that as we come to the Lord's Supper now. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you again for our time together in your word. We ask that you would (coughs) use it to encourage and strengthen us. And Lord, we are so grateful for who you are. We're grateful for all that you've done for us, Lord, and we're grateful that you day by day sustain us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we remember that together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.